Welcome to the 10th episode of the second series of the Women in CX podcast, a series dedicated to real talk conversations between women in customer experience. Listen in as we share our career stories, relive the moments that shaped us and voice our opinions as loudly as we like about all manner of CX subjects. I'll be your host, Clamour Skip, and in today's episode, we'll be talking CX tech and life lessons, including my guest's experience of being a young gay woman in the 90s, succeeding in a male-dominated industry, and surviving cancer to become the UK's number one CX professional. Let me introduce you to today's inspiring woman. She began her career as a grad in operations before moving to Premier Inn, where she headed up brand excellence and later became customer service director. These days, she's Senior Director of Professional Services at Medallia and in her spare time speaks and raises funds in aid of Maggie Centres who provide free practical and emotional support for people living with cancer. Please welcome to the show, CX sister, Amanda Riches. Hi Amanda. Hi Claire. How are you doing today? Yeah, good actually. Very well, thank you. How are you? Yeah, I'm great. I'm great. And welcome to everybody listening at home as well. So um, just for the listeners' benefit, I think I should probably point out that you and I have known each other a rather a long time, haven't we? We have indeed, yeah. <laughs> so Amanda and I worked together back in the Whitbread days. And for those of you that have been following the podcast, I quite often make references to the times that I ran pubs or my first job in the office. Mandy was my head of department. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. No, great, yeah. I just called you Mandy again. Amanda! <laughs> Doesn't matter, it's fine. <laughs> Um, so should we just jump right in then and talk about kind of that backstory of how you got into CX and the pub days because obviously we both worked in the same kind of industry at a similar age being young women in uh, pub companies I just wondered what was that experience like for you and especially being a gay woman in a male-dominated environment yeah, absolutely. So I, f- I forget, you know, we all we both started in the pub operations. And um, so prior to Whitbread, this was for me. I mean, I joined um, an area manager graduate training scheme at a pub and leisure company when when I was um, when I left university. Um, and actually, when you think about CX, it's not a bad grounding just and also for life in general and how to survive in that challenging environment. And um, I was um, very much... Uh, I guess I was 23 and I was managing sort of pub managers who were 40 to 50 year old, as you say, a very male dominated industry, gay when it wasn't always okay to be gay. And I think, you know, probably in some of their eyes, um, it was the, I was, I was a graduate trainee. So some kind of young upstart just out of uni. Um, so, but I mean, I mean, pub operations was, was a great place to be. It was a bit of a boys club. So jobs for the boys. But it was fantastic that in our um, intake, um, we actually, they were actively recruiting to take women into that industry, particularly because they were trying to make pubs more female friendly. Mm-hmm. So you need some people in leadership positions who could, you know, drive that forward. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but it was a tough environment. And like you probably experienced it as well, Claire. It was quite laddish behavior. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah, and exactly. some, some behavior that was quite borderline, I think, towards women, but obviously only from a few people. Yeah, yeah. Well, you were obviously an area manager, whereas I was a general manager. So you were like managing pub managers, right? Whereas yeah. I was like in the thick of it, being a pub manager alongside a load of other pub managers. And ninety uh, percent of my colleagues were all white, middle-aged men. And I was yeah. also twenty-three, running um, my first hotel and restaurant. 
and it was a similar experience I guess of kind of no matter what I did I still had to work that bit harder just to prove that I could do it (laughs) um or in in like team management meetings um you know having the confidence to speak up when everybody around me had like literally 10 20 years of experience in the job and I'd just come out of university I'd worked in pubs you know all my life in, in terms of well the, the five years before um, and worked my way up to assistant and general manager but it just it felt very intimidating um as a young woman yeah I, absolutely I, I think it is and um you know I, I guess um and probably the sort of being young piece was was more of a challenge actually yeah. than the, the being gay part I think yeah. um maybe a gay man might have experienced more challenges than my partner and I did Mm. Um, but when we came out of work we were actually met with more curiosity and and you know the kind of we're hey girls type of thing from the lads but uh, sexualization (laughs) of (laughs) (laughs) exactly Um, but but interestingly I mean the main negativity that I remember was from the HR leadership Um, Mm. and I think these days people in people and culture functions and HR they're leading the way in that diversity and inclusion. But at that point, we were seen a bit of a problem, um, only by a small minority in the HR leadership, but still a problem. Mm. Um, and there was actually kind of sentiments of how would female colleagues feel working with us, being in the same room as us, you know, those sorts of things. And that sort of stereotype that if you're gay, you're, you're, you're a predator <laughs> or whatever. <laughs> so I'm really glad that things have moved over time and we yeah. don't, really experience that so much anymore yeah and I didn't realize that you'd been with your partner from like right at the very start of your yeah long time now (laughs) old and married (laughs) (laughs) proper old married couple now (laughs) that's cute exactly so how did you get from the operations into customer experience and, and what were the biggest challenges you faced along the way well I think um, multi-site operations is a great ga- grounding in all areas of business mm-hmm. and, and at running pubs as well. You would you would have seen that and, and known that. And, and I naturally moved from that into more sort of business development type of roles and then customer experience roles, both in corporates like Whitbread, but also through my own consulting company on interim contracts like at Fidelity and, and a variety of different sectors. So, mm. and I think I, I just always loved understanding what customers really wanted, how we could do things better. And then as I got more of the sort of higher up corporate positions, it was more about, you know, you see the frontline sometimes struggling, they're trying to do their best. And actually we've got business processes and things like that that are in place and a huge amount of administrative tasks that kind of get in the way really yeah. um I, maybe you experienced that being on the other end <laughs> of it but, but I you know I, I certainly think it was natural for me to start thinking about how can we um cut the crap really <laughs> of what was out there and stop people delivering you know what they needed to do for their customers yeah I, I remember those days very much as you know kind of trying to operate operate I can't say it operationalize the brand so yeah. we were very much thinking about kind of like standards and quality and measures and metrics that drove the right behaviors um and I think again that gave me a really good grounding in CX <laughs> it um, does and, yeah. and you don't realize it necessarily at the time yeah. but um you know so I, and I do think it but you know I suppose over the years it must be I mean it's probably 20 odd years now Claire which I know you've called me old once today and now you're probably going to do it again but <laughs> 2006 2007 so 
<laughs> 14 years 13 years ago <laughs> yes yeah, so it's still a long time for you now as well <laughs> <laughs> but yeah I mean I, I really you know I think I, I sometimes think about and you know why, why do I continue doing what I do mm. um and of course you know I think business results and the ROI of of customer mm. experience is of course key absolutely but but it is more than that and I know you know I mean the return on investment piece is so critical I think it used to be seen as a bit of a fluffy thing customer experience but now you have to be focusing on what the business outcomes are you have to be focusing on what are the barriers to purchase all those sorts of things mm. um but I think I may have said to you before um Claire that that for me it's it, it's God, this is going to sound really corny now, but um, <laughs> better experiences are, are, for me ultimately make people and cust- you know customers and employees happier. Yeah. And when I think about what else, why else I do this, it is about making people's lives better. Mm. Um, and I think despite our focus on CX in recent years, there's too, you know, way too many experiences that still suck the life out of people. Mm. Um, and you talked about one of my biggest challenges, Claire, and I think, you know, you know that I've been through health concerns and had cancer, what I say three and a half times, but it's essentially <laughs> three big times and uh, one small. And, and life is short and time is precious. And I really find it incredible that we're still asking those same questions day in, day out, you know, about why, why are some simple tasks so hard to do um, you know, why are we still waiting on hold on, on a call to a call center because the website doesn't do what you want it to do, all those sorts of things. Um, and I definitely think that, you know, as CX professionals and leaders, we, we have a responsibility to, to make lives better and get rid of those kind of energy sapping experiences. That's so interesting. So you've kind of like tied together your experience of how short life is to how many days we waste or time we waste for customers yeah. in their experience waiting on things like phone lines. Um, I just have to ask that, how do you get cancer three and a half times? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so it's one of those weird ones where I suppose I've had three major ones over the years. Right. And actually that's over 25 years now. So yeah. it's a long time that I've had those and I'm very lucky. You know, I know I'm very lucky and there will be people potentially listening who yeah. unfortunately their loved ones are not here now, but um the, the half is is was because it was kind of a small a small uh, skin cancer mm. um so you know i and, and i feel like it, it was so small and compared to the others <laughs> that it's actually you know i, I count just, it as my kind of half <laughs> just brush that one off, <laughs> that, one off <laughs> oh, exactly. that was easier <laughs> to deal with and yeah. and how was it like trying to maintain i guess your career and your health simultaneously oh it's always a struggle and i think for anyone in this mm. industry um and generally in work like you know keeping that balance is hard um but i always found that almost keeping life not not making cancer your whole life but um making it part of your life was better for me and i think it's very individual but for me it was about still keeping some element of normality so still trying to work through parts probably too much so at times mm-hmm. um but continuing to keep that work going gave me a sense of life hasn't just stopped because everything else when you're with cancer, it, it, you lose that lack, that control. Um, so, so yeah, I, I, t- I tended to keep 
moving along but looking after yourself and being good at your job is hard sometimes yeah yeah it is it is generally but um in the face of I suppose such serious illness but did it ever were you ever worried that you might not make it or did you always have a positive kind of outlook from the doctors was it you you it really does shake your mortality um and your view on mortality and I think COVID has done that to an extent to a number of people now as well um but I I guess it, it, interesting the first couple of times I don't know whether it's the optimism of youth but I I didn't get that same sense and I always thought I would come through it but then it really hit me hard on third one mm-hmm. really did and that's where I was sort of I don't know whether I can do this again <laughs> mm-hmm. but um you know I it you can't necessarily call it sort of positive thinking or anything I don't think that's the right thing mm-hmm. but it's just you know I'm really lucky to have lots of loving family and friends and and as I say a, a good view on trying to still be productive in the world so it just kept me going really yeah yeah I think to some extent they, they do call it a fight don't they so having to not it's not thinking positive because that doesn't make sense but <laughs> like you said yeah. like having the having the attitude of I, I want to beat this I know my I, I experienced it in my family like my mm. grandma and grandfather both had cancer multiple times um but yeah, that kind of sense of I can and I will beat this <laughs> was um, something very powerful that I felt around them that they had that kind of belief that it would be okay. I just hope. Yeah. yeah. Um, it's, but even the fighting angle is a difficult one because, right. you know, I know some people who have, that almost makes it then feel like from a cancer patient's perspective that, uh, oh, did I not try hard enough? Right. So... So it, it can, you know, that, that has a double-edged sword. I think it is about trying to really focus on what you can do. Mm. Um, but, um, you know, I see, I've known some really, really strong people who did everything they possibly could and st- are still not yeah. with us today. And, you know, so it's... Uh, mm. But you, that, um, and I don't want to be flippant because, I, as I say, I acknowledge people have had different experiences. Mm. For me, I've also had some real positives about it. and you know, my experience, I, I certainly think that, you know, my partner Fiona and myself, we have um, always really, you know, just appreciated each other probably more, more. because you don't know that it's always going to be there. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. I can, I can kind of understand that from the perspective of COVID just with that, how much everybody has lost that we all took for granted. Right. No, not not like living living per se, but you know, travel, being able to go on holidays, being able to meet up with people, being able to hug people. <laughs> that um, appreciation when we can go back to doing it, I'm sure a lot of us will treat life with much more gratefulness for the fact that we can do the simple things. <laughs> um, I think that's right, and you know, um, and also you 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 know, although we've got a world of technology. I think the human interactions during this period, um, you know, thinking about from a customer experience perspective has been really, really important. And we saw, you know, with the clients that I work with now, um, we've seen uh, employees uh, sort of in in stores and that, their customers being so concerned that actually your employees, your employer is Mm -hmm. treating you as well, you know, so 
and it's coming through in the feedback and things like that that you see that yeah that human connection has become even more important yeah yeah and I suppose that's a good place to jump back off from in terms of thinking about the future so yes technology is increasing um the human factor everybody agrees we want to maintain this but it seems to be getting further and further apart what is it exactly that you're doing at Medallia that helps companies with CX and helps with the human side? Yeah, so I mean, so for those that I know, a lot of people do know Medallia, but many people may not. So, uh, um, so, so we're the market leader in experience management, and and that's both on the sides of um, really helping to. Um, understand and manage the experience of customers or employees, um, but also citizens. So we work with some government bodies as well. Um, and that's through two things, as you say, firstly is, is technology. And the second bit is about advising our clients. So that's more the side that I sit on. Mm. Um, so from a, a technology perspective, it, it's really around capturing feedback and other data from the experience itself, or you know, if you're unable to complete a task on a website, that kind of thing, or maybe operational data that really helps businesses understand what's happening holistically about that experience, and then re really using the technology for machine learning to detect patterns and you know, of behavior, predict risks and opportunities. Mm. But actually, as you say, that human element is that at the end of the day, whilst, you know, clients who work with Medallia are embarking on a, a technology implementation, actually it's more of an effort in change management. And, you know, it, it's about central, as you know, Claire, to driving CX is, is really about changing the behavior of people within that organization. Mm. Um, so, so, you know, me and my team will work with um, our clients to really say, how can we, you know, let's help you to to drive that change in mm. behavior, um, whether that's, you know, I mean, you know so much, Claire, and I'm sure our listeners will as well, but it's engaging the people. It's that visible executive leadership, the training and the communication, you know, have, have you got the structures in place to, to design a great experience, all those sort of things that come around it, which is so important. Mm. I agree. So, so where do you think CX is heading then, given all that? What should we be watching out for? Oh, it's a tough one, isn't it, really? <laughs> but um, as I say, I still think that the human element is still a critical part, even though technology facilitates that. But um, I mean, from, I, I think, um, you know, I guess a big challenge is that customer journeys and customer experience, which used to be more straightforward are really quite complex now and, and particularly with covid you've got customers interacting in different ways you've got employees trying to navigate new ways of working um, and and therefore i think there's so many areas you know if i go back to the experiences that time waste and suck the life out of people mm -hmm. there's actually a lot of areas now that we might not meet expectations so um, i think for me there's there's two two key things and one is around getting that complete picture. Um, and the second one is acting with speed and adapting as quickly as possible. And I think, you know, when I, when I say getting that complete picture, essentially, Claire, what, what I'm talking about there is that there's many brands and organizations who are still reliant on direct feedback in the form of surveys. Mm -hmm. um, 
And, you know, that's absolutely a foundation. But I, I do think it's really also about how do you get the rest of that information that's out there, whether that's, you know, social media or harnessing employee feedback to get their insights into what their customers mm -hmm. are saying or analyzing chat logs or visit patterns on website, returns behavior, do you know what I mean? All those sorts of things, the call handling time. That, that gives you such a much more holistic picture of what's actually going on. Yeah. Um, and I, I worry that where people only rely on one form, they're not really seeing all of that that's there and useful to, to really help improve customer experience. And, and then, but, but I guess um, the, the, um, the kind of capturing it is, is one part and I know you're, you're big on this well it's what you do with this yes and what you that's far more important is, yeah it's so much more important yeah. and and I feel like and I don't know whether it's because we're so in this COVID piece at the moment but I really think that we've got to set ourselves up better to adapt and act quickly and and I you know some some large companies particularly larger ones um sort of lose that startup way of adapting and generating new ideas and and we we almost spend time and money sort of researching so much and then bet on these huge strategies that mm -hmm. go right across the entire company and and instead of sort of helping them learn and adapt faster it just sort of slows people down because you've got to get so many people involved and, and that sort of thing so I, I was thinking about this when you sort of posed the question to me the other day and um i guess i think you know we two two things probably is it, how do we keep our organizations nimble and maybe that's around um certainly fostering the the culture of ideation mm -hmm. and i don't know whether i see many people do that you know those deliberate processes to to get new ideas from your front line from your rest of your people yeah, agreed um and then rather than betting on the, these huge, big strategies, it's like, I kind of like to call them micro innovation. So it's not just your breaking a, a little continuous improvement of a process. It's not these major big breakthroughs like Uber and disrupting an yeah. industry, but how do you get those kind of micro innovations and really test and learn and adapt and those sorts of things <laughs> that, um, but I don't know, I, you've, you've also talked about this sort of ability to adapt previously as well. Yeah, well, I say I come from a customer experience design angle in how I approach CX. So, which is basically how do you inform a set of ideas that you can trial and test rapidly in order to get feedback before placing your bets on um, something that's potentially going to be a massive investment. And I also wrote a paper calling out that when it comes to customer experience, transformation is the problem, not the solution. Again, agreeing with you that... <laughs> Uh, when things become so big and unwieldy and are still kind of managed in a control, command and control format and mm -hmm. everything's done by data and metrics and not by kind of like actually asking your frontline teams, where, where are the customer problems? Or focusing on solutions rather than the problems to address. We end up um, with the kinds of programs that take such a long time and so much resource and such strong leadership that by the time they actually land the thing that they were trying to land it might be four or five years and actually <laughs> the goalposts have changed or exactly, customers want yeah. something else and it's a, a massive waste of energy um so yeah so i think um like agile cx for me mm. definitely is a way forward um 
really critical but, absolutely yeah but I, I think the, the practices already exist in some departments like IT for example you you, you wouldn't necessarily um, probably wouldn't build like a digital product without going through design discovery development delivery kind of iterative approach but when companies get bigger it seems to be that the departments find it harder to work together and to work in that kind of way so you might have like waterfall style projects happening in operations and hr and agile projects happening in dnt and technology but what you end up with is an even more disjointed experience yeah absolutely yeah uh, which is challenging but just conscious of your time um and my final question really is just to kind of summarize all of that what would your three biggest takeaways be for women in cx Ooh. put you on the spot <laughs> I know I was thinking uh, um what have I taken away over the years I think um trusting your judgment definitely and your intuition so I know they always laugh about women's intuition but I remember I suppose in early days of my career being told by a senior executive that he wished I'd just trust trust my judgment more and not have every single fact and figure analysed to the nth degree. And, you know, clearly I'm a big believer in data-driven decisions. I wouldn't be doing what I do otherwise. But I I, I guess we we probably shouldn't overanalyse things. And sometimes you just have to take action and test it and learn it and change it. And women in particular, I think, need to trust their gut because I don't know whether we always do. We kind of want to make sure that it's sort of all there first and yeah. I don't know whether that's your experience but yeah so maybe I'm talking from my point of view no, but... no, no. It, it is and I think like trusting your instinct comes from um a place of reassurance that you can reassure yourself that you'll mm-hmm. be right so um I know I had a lot of experiences in my early days of my career and even like you know high school and uni and stuff where I really doubted myself so sometimes I look for reassurance when I don't need really need it but just Mm. to make myself feel better um but I don't know how you kind of build that other than just saying in the five seconds between thinking about something and deciding what you're going to do about it just doing it (laughs) and trying or just saying it or just you know taking the action and not overthinking too much but I think yeah it's a very female thing to do it appears (laughs) I think so definitely and maybe I mean part of what you're doing here is you know about that is around building that resilience that we have so so actually not being concerned about it building that support community around you of of good women but also men you know one of my people I'd say one of the guys that I work with, Matt um, Churchill, he, he's he's very, he's been my partner in crime alongside and makes me better at what I am and maybe innate, you know, helps me yeah. to, to almost just jump in a bit more. And, and I think, um, you know, you, you need those people around you. Um, so I, I really love what you're trying to do here, Claire, definitely. Um, and, and building that community of people. Um, so I don't know whether I've given you three. I think the one, the one other one that I would say is is just being bold, and I think it's linking to that yeah. that that piece there. That you know, I do. I can't remember what that TED talk is, and you'll probably know it. That talks about how women need to be a hundred percent perfect, almost, and yeah. we're almost kind of socialized to be perfect, and therefore we're overly cautious sometimes. Um, yeah. And I do think. And you then know, 
be zero percent emotional isn't it that one <laughs> well, I'm trying to remember. Um, I knew it wouldn't come to me but uh, but it's 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 yeah, it's that bit where they I remember her talking about where you know if if a, a man is is gonna looks at a job on LinkedIn if they've got 60 yeah, percent of the qualifications yeah. they'll go, go for, for it, it that one yeah. Whereas a hundred percent, we kind of go, oh, we got to have it all. And I think yeah. we have to be bold. And if you think about it in in CX, you know, we are catalysts for change. Mm. So generally, we're we're and not everybody likes change. So you you sort of you've got to be bold. You've got to be resilient. And and I think you've got to trust your judgment and and just go for it. And I I, I don't see that there are any failures as long as you learn for them. Yeah, so. yeah, yeah. And that's definitely a theme that I'm sensing throughout these uh, podcast episodes mm-hmm. is everybody reflecting on like the fear of failure but actually the failures or the difficult times or the challenges actually being the biggest place of growth when we're sailing along and everything's fine it's nice but we don't really get that much out of it other than <laughs> enjoyment um but the times where we've struggled or we've been flat broke or lost our jobs or whatever that's when our character really does get get built so yeah so not being quite so afraid of failure and if it feels uncomfortable and you're not sure, trust your judgment, but recognize that if you're feeling unsure and you're in uncharted waters, it's probably a good thing because it means you're growing. <laughs> it is, yeah, you're right. And learning from those setbacks, as you just say, and, and having that, I love at Medallia, we embrace growth mindset. And I think yeah. that's such an important thing. Definitely. Yeah. You can learn and grow and, it's all you know, growth mindset. Forward, yeah. So. Yeah. And it's interesting, I think, hearing you talk as well, like when you encounter companies with fixed mindsets. Mm. So, you know, whether or not you were a growth mindset individual or um, there are teams that have got very much a growth mindset as an organization as a whole, if they're not willing to try and change and try to do things differently or um, are re- not up for changing in response to consumer needs because they want to maintain something like the brand um, that they used to have it's a one-way trip isn't it really to Mm. darwin's (laughs) theory of evolution you're not going to make it if you're you're not open and willing to adapt but you need to have that growth mindset in order to do it well it's been really cool catching up with you today so nice you too um and thanks to everyone that listened at home and we'll see you all next week thanks amanda (laughs) bye bye Thanks for listening to the Women in CX podcast with me, Claire Musket. If you enjoyed the show, please drop us a like, subscribe and leave a review on whichever platform you're listening or watching on. And if you want to know more, please do join us at Women in CX community and follow the Women in CX page on LinkedIn. Join us again next week, where I'll be talking about how to use CX insight and metrics to drive action with a woman who overcame the challenges of working in male-dominated environments to become the CX commercial director at Kantar. See you all next week.